And when Rav Ranschbuch says he wishes him a new year, he doesn't mean Rosh Hashanah, because this letter is written on the 6th of Teves in December. This is a New Year's card written by a Dayan and a Rav, one of the Mepharshei HaTalmud, to a Christian censor. We are the people of the book. But as paradoxical as it sounds, that book is not the written one. It's the oral one. Because there are two other rather large religions that claim to believe in the quote-unquote Old Testament. So it's the book of the oral law that's ours. But what exactly is the oral law, Teresh Is it the Mishnah? Is it the Gomorrah? Is it the Rambam? Where does it start? Where does it end? On the 7th of September 1654, a ship named the St. Charles docked at a small harbour off the Atlantic Ocean and 23 Jews disembarked to begin life in a new town, in a new country in fact. But the outcome of this new beginning was one that no one could ever have foreseen. Welcome to History for the Curious. I'm Mena Reisner, and I host the internationally renowned lecturer, dynamic historian, and tour guide, Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch. Experience our history, confront dilemmas, and reveal the untold stories of 3,000 years of Jewish heritage, from Paris to Cairo, from the Russian Tsar to Maimonides, and from the Sinai Revelation to the French Revolution. Join the fastest growing Jewish history podcast in the world by subscribing to this channel and discovering the events that have shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. Welcome back to all the listeners. I might sound a bit different tonight because I'm feeling a bit under the weather, but we'll pedal through. So we have now concluded the seven-part Yishmael versus Yisrael series. I just want to thank again to everyone who took the time to write to us and tell us how much they um, enjoyed it and they were well informed by it. But now we're going to get back to general Jewish history. Rabbi Hirsch. Yes, uh, quite varied Jewish history uh, with a little bit of other stuff thrown in. I wanted to do a series on interesting letters of the past 1,000 years of history, probably a three-part series. Some of these letters are of major importance, some are unknown, and some of unusual outcomes, I would say. Uh, so we'll start with a European letter in the early 1800s. It's really correspondence between two rabbis and a Christian which, as we will see, will be quite topical for this time of year. So Prague, for decades, centuries even, had a very strict censorship of Jewish books. And we mentioned it at length in the first two podcasts on 18th century Prague. Any Jewish book to be printed had to be approved. Major works such as the Gomorrah Talmud, or even minor ones, uh, droshes of a local rabbi. And therefore, hundreds of svarim in the early 1700s, for instance, were confiscated or banned outright. Now, being the censor for Hebrew books meant being someone who had real ability to read Hebrew. And that's why the role was often filled by a Jew who'd converted to Christianity or by a senior level church official. In the late 1700s, this role is filled by a guy called Carl Fisher. He is the Hebrew censor over Bohemia and will be in situ for over 50 years. And Fisher was the first ever secular person to hold this position. 
but, uh, and this is a big but, he had a very positive attitude towards the Druze, which would normally almost automatically disqualify you from the job. I mean, the whole idea of censorship against the Druze was for the church or the government to keep these Druze in check. Yet somehow he manages to stay in this position for over half a century. And we have extensive correspondence in Hebrew from him with a number of Jewish rabbis. And because he was an expert in Hebrew and Aramaic, that's the language they correspond in. And he has a beautiful script writing. He's fluent in in idioms. What type of rabbis was he in contact with? Real rabbis, perhaps is the way to put it. Uh, the main one was Rebeleza Flecalus, who was the most important Talmud of Reb uh, Cheskel Landa and Neudi Behuda. In fact, a number of responses from the Neudi Behuda are written to him. He became the Av Bezdin in Prague. He is buried just near the Neudi Behuda, and he wrote the Shailas Truvas Truva Me'ava. And he was uh, a strong critic of Moses Mendelssohn, who was obviously founding reform during Reflectus's lifetime. Um, but I suppose crazily enough, these two, Fischer and Reflectus, had a friendship. I don't mean they're just being polite to each other. Carl Fischer describes this relationship in 1803 in one of his letters to the banker Philip Gompertz. He tells the banker that he can send his reply, the reply to Fischer, via the Prague rabbi while he is out of town. And he says... As I will only be away for a short time, you can write anything you want to the local first chief jurist, in other words, the Av Bezdin, Revileza Flecalus, for we are as two good brothers. And remembering for a moment that in 1714, they burnt hundreds of sorim in Prague. For nearly 150 years, the Gomorrah can't be printed there. And there's the whole episode that we mentioned about Rubionis and Eibeshitz reprinting one volume of Brochus and the trouble he got into. Uh, Rubdovid Oppenheim, who was the Rav in Prague for 34 years, never being reunited with his extremely large and important Svarim collection because he couldn't risk bringing it into Prague. And he's, you know, nearly imprisoned because he runs foul of the censor. So the very idea of a friendly censor in Prague is absurd. I mean, you're talking about friendly censor and, you know, clearly they had a relationship. But when you say friendly, obviously Reflectless could not print anything without permission from him being the censor to publish, whether it's his writings or even his droshes, I believe. So he needed him. I mean, it might have been a bit of a, a useful relationship. Yes, but you find uh, the rabbi inviting him for Purim. You find them lending books to each other. And they were similar in certain ways. They were approximately the same age. They had at one stage in their life experienced considerable uh, financial problems. They were obviously their whole life was Hebrew Sforim. But you find... Fisher acknowledging Reflectless as an outstanding Jewish scholar, and the other way around, he is impressed by Fisher's almost extraordinary knowledge of, of Hebrew, of Jewish literature, and particularly of his positive attitude towards the Jews. He shared privileged information with Reflectless. At the end of one letter, Carl Fisher writes, destroy this after you have read it. Although 
Clearly it wasn't, otherwise we wouldn't have it. But the really interesting thing is in that instruction, which is called all written in Hebrew because the whole letter is written in Hebrew, is that Fisher writes, Achar HaKriya Kriya. After Kriya with an Aleph, Kriya with an Ayin. Now this is somebody who really speaks the language. And he also has a very close relationship with Robert Sandel-Runschberg, whose Hagos feature on the side of the page of Gomorrah. And the way these notes appeared there is because Fisher was the first one to allow the Talmud to be printed in Prague in 1830. And this brings us to the topical bit, because there is a letter written in 1819 from Rivetal to Karl Fischer, whom he wishes a Shona Chadosha. Shona Chadosha Tatsmiach Vesale. It should, you know, grow, etc. And this uh, letter is written in rhyme. And when Rav Ranschburg says he wishes him a new year, he doesn't mean Rosh Hashanah, because this letter is written on the 6th of Teves in December. This is a New Year's card written by a Dayan and a Rav, one of the Mepharshei HaTalmud, to a Christian censor. Quite controversial. It's unusual, that's for sure. And Fisher also wrote a book to explain and really defend the value of the Talmud for Christians. He said that Christians um, should print the Talmud because it's an important source for studying the New Testament. How was he able to get away with this? His job was clearly to censor Jewish books and it didn't sound like he was doing a good job of it. Beyond that, he actually even pushed off the main censor in Vienna. Um, it's not really so clear what he told his superiors. It's true that it was no longer the church by then, the, the Jesuits. It was the state. But even so, that was, his, as you say, his job. He didn't allow everything through. Some stuff was censored and he got flack for it. He writes in a letter that uh, Le Fichemur, I understand that uh, Rabonim Malinim are lie there complaining about me, about the Haskomus, etc. And he says, Haim Koru Bigzero, did they read the decree that the government came out with? And then he writes in the middle in Hebrew, but he's now writing in German. He says, Freinde, man muss Freinde obenisch to finder machen. Freinder means friends, finder are enemies. You know, don't turn friends into enemies. And he then goes on to say that Dina de Malchusa Dina. And in other words, give me a break. Beyond which, he is clearly up on the politics of the then poor functioning of the internal Jewish administration in Prague because he wrote, and I quote, um, about the Bezdin, the first chief jurist, Rebeleza Fleckelis, is a widely respected scholar, a renowned man, and moreover, a skillful preacher. His colleague, the second chief jurist, Reb Shmuel Landau, is his adversary and opponent. Fire and water or wind and earth are more likely to be in harmony together than these two. Nothing is known about the third chief jurist, except that he is an ignoramus and is about as useful as the fifth wheel of a coach. And those who've been with me on a trip to Prague will recall uh, me mentioning him. But it's interesting because of all places in Europe, Prague did throw up some non-Jews who were very friendly towards the Jews uh, all the way through to this present day. And that is our first letter of interest. That was the cute one. Uh, now we come to an important one. And this has a bit of philosophy thrown in. 
Some of you may have heard of the Igeris, the letter of Rav Shrira Goon, written in approximately 987 CE, and it gives a timeline of more than a thousand years of rabbinic history from before the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 CE all the way until approximately the year 1000 CE. So over a thousand years. And this is the period of the sages of the Mishnah, of the Gemara, of the Goenim, the time of the uh, oral law, Teresh Balper. But this letter is far more than simply a list of who taught whom and who was the head of the yeshiva of Sura and Pompadisa. Let's explain first why it was written and why, in fact, it is so fundamental, possibly the most important letter written in the past 1,500 years. And uh, what we will see is that Perhaps despite the fact that few of our listeners will recognize it as such, they will be aware of certain important parts of it, not necessarily linking it to the letter itself. We are the people of the book. But as paradoxical as it sounds, that book is not the written one. It's the oral one, because there are two other rather large religions that claim to believe in the quote unquote Old Testament. So it's the book of the oral law that's ours. But what exactly is the oral law, Teresh Is it the Mishnah? Is it the Gomorrah? Is it the Rambam? Where does it start? Where does it end? And we know that Torah is made up of both the oral law and the written law. The written part is Tanakh. There's 24 Svarim written during the era of prophecy. It's direct communication with HaKadosh Baruch Hu until the time of the second Beis Amigdash. So let's say until 2,300 years ago. That is the end of the period of Tanakh. It's the end of prophecy. And that's, by the way, where the first chapter of Pirkei Ovis starts with the words, Moshe Kibbal Teri gives it to Yeshua, Zakenim to the Nevi'im, full stop. End of Teresh and now we start the Mishnah. So the Mishnah is the beginning of Teresh Not exactly, because Teresh splits into three areas. It's not too complicated to follow, but it's very fundamental. Um, and it's actually the dividing line between orthodoxy and the other branches of Judaism. So it's important for Jews to know. There are three parts. The first part of the oral law is that part of the Torah which accompanies the written law in the time of Moshe, which Moshe taught orally. How do we know he did so? Because otherwise large parts of the Torah make no sense. For instance, the laws of Shechita. All the Torah says is, You shall slaughter animals as I commanded you. But he doesn't say how. So Shehir, Drisa, all these where are they? Or, for instance, it says in the Torah at least a dozen times, keep Shabbos. And it says, you don't keep Shabbos, you will be put to death over and over. So, you know, you know happy to do this uh, Shabbos stuff, Moses, but uh, what are the laws? This is biblical Torah Shabbat And it's only the Chumash, not Tanakh, just through Moshe. So when you say which Moshe taught, are you also referring to when in the Talmud it says Halacha Misinai, or is that something else? Generally, there's a, uh, a major Chavisyoy, of the Chavisyoy, and the Rambam on this. Uh, let's, for the moment, not complicate it. Okay, that's one type of Teresh Balper. 
at the complete opposite end of the scale, both in authority and age, any takona, any decree made by any manig, leader of the generation over the past 3,000 years, also forms part of the oral law. But here we're talking purely rabbinic oral law, never biblical. For instance, can you eat chicken and milk together? No. Why not? It's rabbinic. It's prohibited, but it's rabbinic. Do you light candles on Shabbos? Yes, it's rabbinic. The text of the silent prayer, second day Yontav, the entirety of the Yontav of Hanukkah, all of this is rabbinic. It's all part of the oral law. Sometimes it's hundreds of years old, could be thousands of years old, or it could be created in the 20th century by Moshe Feinstein or the Chaznish. With me so far, two types of oral law. One from Moshe over a 40-year period, stops the moment he died, and the other is ongoing. One is biblical, one is rabbinic. Okay, and the third part? So this is the more complicated bit. The third section of the oral law, I will both simplify and generalize, is the teachings of the Mishnah. The sages of the second Beis Amigdash and beyond, the Tanoim, over a 500-year period where they teach halacha, which they decide, but all of it is derived, is learnt from psukim, from verses in the Torah. Uh, How do we know there are three cardinal sins? When exactly is the biblical mitzvah to recite the Shema every day? If you said the Shema this morning after, I don't know, 10.20 in the morning, you've blown it. What exact transaction creates a legal divorce in Torah, in biblical law. This area of the oral law took place over these 500 years from the Anshek Nesesagdola, from the men of Great Assembly, until Rebbe, until Rebbe Hudanossi. Like you mentioned before, the first chapter in Pirkei spells that out. Exactly, yes. But the problem is as follows. We basically only have names in the last 200 years of that whole period of time. Of the majority of that time, we know barely a handful all the famous ones, uh, Rabbi Kiva, Hillel, they're all the last decades of the Beis Amigdash or post Khorban. So who were the sages who existed before that? There are hundreds of them. And why don't I know their names? And halachically, who decided and why that, for instance, Reb Meir, the Tanner, often known as Reb Meir Balanes, was greater than his colleague Reb Shimon, who's often known as Reb Shimon Who made that decision? And, I don't know, who was the teacher of Rav and Shmuel? And what was Sura and Pompadisa? So what happens is that a thousand years ago, somebody wrote a letter to Reb Sadyagon in Baghdad. Uh, the name of the writer is um, Nissin ben Yaakov of Karuan. And he asked for clarity and he had a whole list of questions. Uh, why is he asking now? Because Reb Sadyagon encouraged all of the diaspora to write all their questions in. Uh, in halacha, in practical life, we'll see another question soon. And Rapsadia speaks with the authority of one of the Jewish people's greatest scholars. He ruled over world Jewry of his day with his vast knowledge of Torah. He had access to all the archives and the oral traditions of the Shiva of Pompadisa, reaching back basically in an unbroken chain to the time of the destruction of the first Besamikdosh. And the result of this highly compressed into a few thousand words is a history with tremendous sweep and painstaking detail and unchallenged authority because his 
chronological list of the Goenim down to when he is writing is a demonstration of the authenticity of Masora, of the rabbinic tradition tracing generation after generation. And, you know, we hear the expression perhaps too often that the Godel Hadar said there is no singular Godel Hadar nowadays. The last time in Jewish history there was one Godel Hadar was a thousand years ago. Rav Sadyagon. Even his son, Rav Haigon, um, he lived when Rabbeinu Gershom was in Ashkenaz and Rabbeinu Hananel was in North Africa. Obviously, we have nowadays Gedolim, of course. Yeah. So you're talking about the singular God Ladar, but there have been many Gedolim through the centuries, such as the Chofetz Chaim, the Chazanesh, yeah. Rabbi Yashim. Yes, but none of them are singular, which ends at the end of the period of the Goenim, basically. And Rav Sadyugon's answers are absolute fundamentals of orthodoxy because, as I mentioned, it's precisely on this point that reform nowadays, and in his days the Karaites disagreed. They said that the oral law of the Mishnah and the Talmud is a man-made invention, so he is defending the building blocks of most of the halacha that we have and learn. So it starts, V'shesha altem, you asked me, Ketzad nichnevo ha-Mishnah, how was the Mishnah written? Im Meaning, did the men of the Great Assembly, the Anshik Nesazagdola, did they know all of Teresh Balper already? So why didn't they write it down? Or are we saying somehow that the Anshik Nesazagdola started the process and each successive generation added a little bit to it until Rebbe came along and sealed it? But if that's the case, and each generation added significantly, why are most of the sages mentioned the ones who lived almost at the end? Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yesi, Rabbi Shimon, who are all second century CE Jews, and they're all Talmidim of Rabbi Akiva. Uh, maybe, in fact, um, none of the Mishnah was written until the very end of uh, Rabbi Yehuda Anossi's life. And how was the Talmud written? And anyway, why was the oral law written down? So this is the year 987. Rav Sadjigon is 81 years old. He lived until either 99 or 100. Was considered very long life. Yes, very long life. And so did his son. And his answer is as follows. I mean, I'm obviously giving you a very... A preceded version of it, very preceded, but the essence of it. In the time of the men of the Great Assembly, there was no need to write down the oral law. Why? Because they're living undisturbed in Bovel and in Eretz Israel. In fact, as we're told in the Mishnah, until the time of Hillel and Shammai, there were no speakers, there were no doubts. These were ironed out, if need be, in the Sanhedrin, and therefore there's no need to write anything down and no need for names. You only have names when you have this sage's opinion versus that sage. But then the Roman persecution started at the end of the lives of Hillel and Shammai. Call it the year 1 CE. And Torah study is disrupted and there's machlekes in halacha as a result and doubts. And then 70 years later the base of is destroyed and subsequently Betar is destroyed and the Tanoim are dispersed all over even if it's just within Eretz Yisrael. And on account, as he writes, of all these upheavals, persecutions, disturbances, questions increased, which caused a lower level of scholarship amongst the rabbis. Are you defining what Yurid Sadaris means, or are you not discussing that at all? No, because what he is talking about is the fact that there was not 
the opportunity to come together and clarify halacha and Torah as there had been in the few hundred years beforehand, which is why there was a far purer Masorah during the period of the second base of Migdash to the hundred years or 120 years afterwards. Right, so it was much better when it was oral rather than when it was getting written. Right. And the oral Torah, to have an oral element to Torah, is much healthier because then the transmission to a Talmud requires a teacher, somebody who will convey the Torah, who was taught by someone, who was taught by somebody in a chain going all the way back up to Moshe Rabbeinu. And we have the names of each link of the leader of that generation in that chain because Torah isn't just knowledge or wisdom. It's not a dry academic work. It's how to live life. So you need a life teacher or a live teacher. And having a teacher requires a student to have humility, which is necessary to absorb Torah, which is why Torah is ideally taught, not studied on one's own. Uh, but then there came generations immediately after the Churban, where the Chachamim were living in different cities. So they had to create a condensed form, a headline form of Teresh This is the Mishnah. And then as the Chachamim get more dispersed, they had to add to the Mishnah more explanation. And that's the Gemara. That's the Talmud. Uh, but now, of course, there is a risk that the person studying it will come to their own conclusions. And that's why you have different halachic opinions in the Gemara. That's the price you pay. But by then they had no choice. And particularly in Rebbe's generation of Rebbe Nossi was an opportune moment to perpetuate the teachings of all these previous generations in writing. He's not inventing Torah, which reform claims, because there is an entire group of sages together over a calm period within the Roman rule over a 30-year period. You said before that you need a live teacher, which, which makes sense because Torah, like you said, is how to live life. And, you know, it's not a dry piece of academic work. So many of our gadolim, though, that we've seen in the past few hundred, possibly a thousand years, seem to have just hauled themselves up in a room and just learned Torah themselves, be it the Vilna Gon, even the Rambam. Right, Chaznesh and, and many others. How do we understand that? That's because once you have so much Torah Shabal Peh, oral law, being written down, it is there, I mean, the very name, Shulchan Oruch, means I have laid the table for you, I have placed it in front of you. It becomes far less of an imperative. The reason there still is an imperative is for this idea of humility, of, of midas, which is why the whole handing down of Torah from generation to generation is to be found in Pirkei Ovis, which talks about midas because it is a prerequisite to, to Torah. But that's where it comes from. And there are rules to the Mishnah that Rabbi Huda Nossi writes. So, for instance, yes, Rabbi Meir is followed over Rabbi Shimon. Stum Mishnah is Rabbi Meir. It doesn't mean that Rabbi Meir originated the Psak, rather that his way of teaching, his clarity, was the one chosen by Rabbi Huda Nossi because he found it to be a purer dissemination of the teachings of their teacher, Rabbi Kiva. 
And he creates rules. Another rule is that if there's a group of sages that argues with one sage, we follow the group unless he can prove his case incontestably. So we have Rabiuda Nossi, who's making precise psek, the bottom line psek. He's making the decisions for Kali Sroll for generations. Why did he then preserve the minority opinions in the Mishnah? Why do we need to know about them at all? You mean, why not just give one rule? What's the law? Because we need to understand how halacha is derived, because there are occasions when we will use the minority opinion. Let's say, for instance, b'shas atchak, uh, which is why you sometimes you go to a rabbi and he says to you, this is what you should do, meat and milk uh, run-ins. Uh, but if it's already happened... Well, I understand. If law is law, how can it change? There's the Lechatchila, there's the Bidi Eved. Uh, there is scope because of minority opinions. And therefore, all in all, Rav Sadyogon explains how Rebbe laid down the fundamentals of the oral law and his letter in turn a thousand years later almost becomes a fundamental defense of Torah and of the oral law so we have this Igeris as a result but just to give uh, to finish off with an example which shows the breadth of questions that was asked of Rabsad Yagon not philosophical don't worry he is asked as follows the Mishnah in Beitzah says, you may not produce fire from wood or stones or sand or water on Yontif. And they write to him, stones and wood are commonly used to produce fire. How do you create fire from water or from sand? To which he answers, we often see people fill a clear glass with water and place it in the sun. When the glass is very hot, they touch it with a piece of cotton, which catches fire. As for sand, there are several ways of producing fire. For example, they take sand from a stone, which is called in Aramaic um, nahurta and in Arabic, Arabic nura, calcium. They burn this substance. They hide it away for several months. And when they want to produce fire, they run water over it. And when it ignites, they use sulfur to transfer the flame. It's always fascinating when you see the Gadolim's breadth of knowledge about, I mean, this is just regular chemistry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah which uh, was not a subject that I did particularly well in. So, okay, that's our second letter. On to our third, they're four together. No more philosophy, just sit back and relax. This one is perhaps known to some of our USA listeners, but hopefully with many added details. On the 7th of September 1654, a ship named the St. Charles docked at a small harbour off the Atlantic Ocean and 23 Jews disembarked to begin life in a new town, in a new country, in fact. But the outcome of this new beginning was one that no one could ever have foreseen. The ship had originally set sail from Recife, a port on the west coast of Brazil. Brazil was a Portuguese colony in the 16th century, which meant it was under the rule of the Inquisition, the Spanish-Portuguese Inquisition, from 1593, forcing the Jews into hiding as Murano Jews. However... In 1630, Recife was conquered by the Dutch, who were much more tolerant, and they allowed the Jews to practice their religion. In fact, in 1636, the Jews opened a synagogue called uh, Kahal Kodesh Tzur Yisrael. This is the first synagogue in all of the Americas. It's on Jordanstraat, which means Jew Street. In 1645, 
The Portuguese began a war against the Dutch that went on for nine years. And Jews joined the Dutch and some were killed in action. But by 1654, the city falls again to the Portuguese. The gamble of the West India Company failed and there are now 600 Jews in danger. But the terms of surrender ended up being very generous. You could take movable property and ships would be provided in the three main ports of the colony. But the Jews had three months to leave Brazil and 16 ships left. The majority went to Amsterdam. Some sailed to the Caribbean islands, such as Curaçao, and all arrived safely except for one, which was captured on the high seas, but the captain of a French ship, the St. Charles, which was a a frigate which carried five guns, rescued them from out of the hands of the outlaws and brings them to New Amsterdam, which is renamed New York uh, 10 years later in 1664 when it was taken over by the British. And they arrive five days before Rosh Hashanah at the harbour, which is currently the financial district of Manhattan. Right. That was the time to buy. They were not the very first Jews to arrive in North America because the pear boom, the pear tree, had arrived from Amsterdam a few weeks early on the 22nd of August and included amongst the passengers was a Jacob Barsimon, Usher Levy and Solomon Peterson. And these are the first known Jews to have wanted to settle in North America. And this is where the letter comes into being. I thought you forgot about the letter. Yes, yes. No, no, no. The letters, really, because the Jews were very unwelcome guests to the party. Peter Stuyvesant was the governor of New Amsterdam, New York. He sent a letter on September the 22nd to the Amsterdam Chamber of Directors in which he wrote, and I quote, The Jews who have arrived would nearly all like to remain here, but learning that they, with their customary usury and deceitful trading with the Christians, were very repugnant to the magistrates, and due to their indigence, they may become a charge, and therefore we have, for the benefit of our newly developing place, asked them to depart this deceitful race who are hateful enemies and blasphemers of Christos. So this is how he felt about these new arrivals. Meanwhile, the Jews in Amsterdam wrote a petition on behalf of these 23 to the directors of the West India Company in 1655, in January, and they wrote, The merchants of the Portuguese nation residing in this city, in Amsterdam, respectfully remonstrate to your honours that it has come to their knowledge that your honours raised obstacles to the giving of permits to the Portuguese Jews, these 23, to travel and reside in New Netherland, but they cannot go back to Spain or Portugal because of the Inquisition. It can be of no advantage to the general company, but rather damaging, provided they don't become a charge. And then they added, by the way, your honours should also please consider that many of the Jewish nation are principal shareholders in the West India Company. Uh, Because Amsterdam was Europe's chief financial centre. You know, loans at the time in England were at 6% and in the Netherlands at 3.5%. And you didn't have to give uh, what was called pawn or pledge. And in 1656, Jews were around 4% of the chief investors in the company. There were minor investors and major ones. And these were 4% of the major ones. And by 1658, they were 6.5%. And uh, basically, Portuguese Jewish merchants were of vital importance to the Dutch economy, the sugar trade and various others. 
So, the company's reply to Stuyvesant, dated April 26th, 1655, as follows. We should have liked to fulfil your wishes and request that the new territories should no more be allowed to be infected therefrom. That's by us lot. Having further weighed and considered the matter, we observe that this would be somewhat unreasonable and unfair. Also because of the large amount of capital which they've invested in the shares of this company. Bit like, uh, I don't know, Harvard and Penn, money sometimes talks. And they wrote, these people may travel and trade in New Netherland, provided the poor amongst them do not become a burden. Now, he doesn't give up easily. He writes back. And on the 30th of October, they write back a second time. And this is the end of their correspondence. The same liberty that is granted them in this country, i.e. in Holland, uh, was extended with respect to civil and political liberties. So long, therefore, as no request is presented to you to allow their religion in synagogues, which is why there are no shawls in New York nowadays. So that is the start of the history of millions and millions of Jews in the US. Absolutely, yes. And it's a little ironic, actually, because none of those 23 stayed very long in the province. And of all the 26 names, only Usher Levy remained and he died in New York in 1682. We mentioned him in our first podcast um, on uh, North America a couple of years ago now. And by 1664, probably none of the original arrivals except for Levy were present to see and accept the surrender to the British, which basically means that two ships in the first half of the 17th century had an impact of immeasurable importance on the direction of USA's history. The Mayflower in 1620, which brought 100 immigrants from England to a uh, patch of land which was to be Plymouth, Massachusetts, and the St. Charles um, 35 years later. Incredible. Wow. And the, I think you have one more letter for one us today. One more letter, yes. So, although Jewish numbers grew in the USA, the intellectual status of Jews in their first couple of hundred years was uh, weak. There wasn't a single Hebrew book published till the mid-19th century. No you know, contribution to Jewish learning, responsa or commentaries. And it was the peddler and trader who were the American Jews rather than the scholar and the student. However... Hebrew in early America was cultivated by Christians. Uh, The Puritans obviously had a strong interest in the Hebrew Bible. And every so often, Jews would sort of appear on America's shores from time to time and tutor Christians. Famously, in 1773, Rabbi Rafal Chaim Yitzchak Karigal became a friend of Ezra Stiles, who himself afterwards was president of Yale College. He was president for 17 years, not six months like other Ivy League presidents. And they studied together. Um, they discussed the interpretation of Mashiach, um, how it's written in Tanakh, and Styles improved his basic skills of Hebrew. And they corresponded mostly in Hebrew. So that was the case for the next couple of hundred years, 300 years, almost 250, after the Jews arrived. But there was a very unusual use of Hebrew in the official correspondence of the United States government while John Hay was Secretary of State. And it happened as follows. In 1900, Romania 
was hit by an economic crisis. And the quarter of a million Jews who were anyway on the verge of poverty, even in normal times, were reduced to absolute uh, destitution. And thousands of them, men, women, children, they set out on foot for the ports of Western Europe and they got on and they left to the United States. And between 1900 and 1906, probably 70,000 of them left Romania. And it created uh, almost a stampede and that made an impact in, in Europe, in America. And the US government, which was obviously at the receiving end of this misery, wasn't indifferent to it. So, in 1902, John Hay, the Secretary of State in the Cabinet of President Theodore Roosevelt, took diplomatic action. On the 11th of August, he wrote to the US representatives in France, Germany, Great Britain, Italy, Russia, Turkey, all of whom had signed the Treaty of Berlin, and to bring to their attention that they should send on to the the actual governments of their countries um, a basically scathing indictment of Romania's policy, which had made paupers and fugitives of the Jews that she had promised to protect in an international undertaking in 1875. And the USA felt they had the right to denounce this because it forced onto uh, American shores, as he put it, a great many outcasts made doubly paupers by physical and moral oppression in their native land. And his letter went on in detail to enumerate the disabilities that reduced the Jews of Romania to a state of wretched misery, their total exclusion from public service, their prohibition of owning lands, even cultivating land, and being barred basically from the rural districts in many cities, they couldn't even get into many of the manual jobs. And in fact, in many ways, and this isn't well known, Romania was worse than Tsarist Russia. You don't hear much about Romania in uh, Jewish history. No, but for instance, you also have Moses Montefiore, who tried to help them on a couple of occasions. So he wrote to Romania and to the other governments. In 1902, on September the 30th, 1902, Rabbi Marcus Hillel Dubov wrote a letter to this Secretary of State, Secretary Hay, expressing gratitude to the Secretary for his note condemning Romania's anti-Jewish measures. He writes in Hebrew on basically Erev Rosh Hashanah um, to, you know, the Right Honourable uh, Secretary of State, um, on this holy day, awesome for all of Israel, uh, Rosh Hashanah 5663, Jewish people everywhere will gather to pray to be sealed in the Book of Life. And at the time, Be'es Ashetechaz Michtavi Zebiodecho, Sar Hayoko, where you, honored Secretary of State, will be holding my letter in your hands. I will be standing basically at the Omud, and I will remember the Secretary of State in my prayers. And in that merit, may you have, may you be written, Besefer Chaim, Chaim Aruchim, Chaim Shaltoiva. Right, this whole thing's in Hebrew. <laughs> in the name of my congregation, B'nai Moshe in Evansville, Indiana, and that's how he signs off the letter. 
Um, he's uh, a Rov who was originally from Minsk in Russia. He was born then in 1852. He learned in Slutsk, in Volozhin. came to America in 1896. In fact, he dies in Petersburg, Virginia on August 26th, 1904. That's interesting in its own right. What's even more interesting is that Secretary Hay responded on October 20th in Hebrew. The letter was translated by Henry Thomas, who was the official translator of the State Department, and it's the first and possibly the only time that Hebrew is used in an official document of the United States government. And he writes as follows. Mirtavcha kibalti. I received your letter. Ish ha'elekim. You, the man of God, v'somachti, and I rejoice that my efforts found uh, favor in your eyes. Hinani Shael min Hashem Halekim, I ask of God, Kivorech es Anshe Brischa, that the, your, your brethren, Asher Beevansville, that they should be blessed and that Eleke Hasholom Ye Mochem Loilom, Oihavcha, your friend John Hay. Wow. Imagine a, a Secretary of State taking that much effort. Now, unfortunately, his efforts in Romania were barren because Russia wasn't interested. And the other signatories of the Treaty of Berlin basically discovered that their economic and political interests didn't align with the Jews' interests. And therefore, you know, it was unwise for them to risk Romania's displeasure. But it was a very real gesture and action and uh, quite amazing. Um, now, the first time Hebrew was officially used in international diplomacy was probably in 1951 when Abba Eban, who was then the youngest delegate at the United Nations, signed a treaty in Hebrew. Well, Rabbi Hirsch, thank you so much. Um, I guess next week we're looking at more letters. Yes, next week we look at a traveller in the late Middle Ages, at an audience with the Pope, and at an attempt to keep people from talking in shul, or prevent them rather, in the 18th century. We saw already from the Geniza, there's nothing that sort of brings history to life more than the written letter where you see people's emotions, you see descriptions, and especially the ones you brought today. Brilliant. Thank you, Rabbi Hirsch. Make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss another episode. Our data currently shows us that only 30% of our listeners are subscribed, which is a shame because it definitely helps the podcast by subscribing. And it will also avoid the emails we get, you know, there isn't a podcast tonight, what happened? So instead of refreshing it the whole time, you could just get a notification. But please carry on sending comments and suggestions to podcast.jle.org.uk. And we'll see you next week.